Good morning to church. Today we are going to be continuing the supplemental sermon series through the book of James as we'll be looking at James chapter 2 verses 14 through 26 this morning. The title of today's sermon is True Faith versus Dead Faith. Our Old Testament reading for today will come from Genesis 22 verses 1 through 19 which will tell of the story of Abraham and Isaac. And our New Testament reading and sermon text for today will again come from James 2, 14 through 26, so that you can find your place there in your Bibles. Old Testament reading. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Starting in verse 22. After these things, God tested Abraham, and he said to him, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. He said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him, and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering, and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes, and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey, and I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac with his son, on Isaac his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, My father, and Abraham said, Here I am, my son. He said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his own son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offering shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Because you have obeyed my voice, so Abraham returned to his young men. And they arose and went together together to Beersheba. And Abraham lived at Beersheba. I don't have anywhere in my manuscript here at church to give any commentary, but... It's very hard to read a story like that and and to not be impacted by what we see with Abraham. As a parent, as we look at that, 
James later is going to reference this story of Abraham. It's very, very important because what we're looking at is true faith, and Abraham displays that faith in his actions. It's one of my personal most favorite stories in Scripture just because of how practical and applicable it is as Abraham came to the Lord to offer up his only son. As we move now uh, to the New Testament reading, James 2, 14 through 26, here again the reading of God's most holy word. What good is it, my brothers, James says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham your father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your word. I thank you to these truths, Father, these truths that are so central to all things, Lord. This is your, your word, the word of God itself written down in a way that we can comprehend, Father. We are so thankful for it. I pray that you open up our hearts and our minds. I pray that you help us to discern your scriptures well, that we would understand this, uh, this difficult teaching that James presents to us today. May minds be open and, and clear. May your word be preached. May you guide me as I preach your word to the people now. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Church, it should not come as a surprise to any of us that individuals who identify as being Christian in America have declined in the last decades. This decline has further accelerated over the past five years. And even in this decline, some polls still estimate that over 60% of individuals in the United States claim to be part of the Christian faith. Now, I do not want to be overly judgmental, especially since my last sermon covered James's section that talked about not judging others. But as we look upon our culture, it is very hard to conclude that nearly two-thirds of our society is truly walking with the Lord. And James has some very important teachings in light of these so-called poll numbers, because in the passage that we will cover today, James informs us that there is truly a thing called dead faith meaning that it, is impossible, that it is possible for one to say that he or she believes in Christ, but at the same time not have a faith that is legitimate, genuine, or saving. In preparing to look more closely at this sermon text, it would be good for us to very, very briefly, this time very briefly, set the context for James 2, 14 through 26. 
we remember that the foundation of James's message is the theme of how we, as true and genuine Christians, are to live on this earth in the midst of our trials and tribulations. Remember that James is both a book of perspective, hence uh, why we should consider our trials and tribulations as joy, and it is a book of action. James is truly making the verse, for we know that God is working all things for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28, a practical and applicable verse that we can actually live out. From the first verse of the first chapter to the last verse of the book, James is providing practical instructions for how Christians are to live in this life. And according to James, right belief will always produce right actions. True faith will produce godly works. Biblical orthodoxy, brothers and sisters, will produce, must produce, biblical orthopraxy. And this is James's key point in this section of his book. As we look more closely at each of the 13 verses for today, we must keep in mind that faith itself is a key doctrine in the Christian life. Remember that we as sinners are solely saved through this thing called faith, Ephesians 2, 8 through 9. And we as believers must walk daily by this faith, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. For without faith, it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six. And whatever we do in this life, apart from our faith, according to Romans fourteen twenty three, is in fact sin. But what is faith? More importantly, what is this true and genuine faith that James here is teaching us? When you read Hebrews 11, which is often titled the Hall of Faith, we read about men and women who acted upon God's word, no matter what price they had to pay. For faith is not merely some kind of good feeling that we get because we read something inspirational or hear a song that is encouraging, though it may be part of it. No, true faith, true biblical faith, is the confidence that God's word is true. And acting upon this belief. In chapter 2, verses 14 through 26, James discusses the inseparable relationship between faith and works. In church, this is a very important section of scripture. For if we are wrong in this matter of what James is teaching us, because James tells us that our eternal salvation could actually be at stake. It is truly a matter of life and death, what James has for us. Or in other words, it is a matter of true faith versus dead faith. In verse 14 we read, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? In this verse, the phrase, what good is it, can literally be translated as what is the usefulness or what is the point of such type of faith. Here James introduces this paragraph with a rhetorical question. What good is it if a man claims to have faith but no works? James says, can that faith, a faith that has no works, save him? Obviously, James anticipates the audience to conclude a negative answer. For a workless or deedless faith has no profit. It is worthless because it bears no fruit. Merely claiming to have faith is not enough. Genuine faith is evidenced by works. Remember, James is a book of action. We've seen that continuously at this point. He has said to us several times throughout his book that action is required. 
In the previous verses, we were merely being warmed up to this blunt and in-your-face statement that he now brings about in the second chapter. James says flat out in the opening verse of this section, a faith with no action is a dead faith, a meaningless faith. It is not a faith at all. And can such a dead faith save a man? No, because it's not really faith. And James tells us why in the following words. In verses 15 through 16, we read, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? In other words, what good is this type of faith, James tells us. In the earlier verses of James chapter 2, he had been exhorting his audience to exercise the duties of love. James had warned about judging our fellow brothers and sisters in the showing of partiality or offering judgment to them inappropriately. Here James expands that concept on the other side to display that dead faith, in fact, shows no love at all. It is actionless, and true love is actionable. James calls his readers to imagine themselves being confronted by a brother or sister in Christ who is, quote, poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. This person is strikingly similar to the poor, uh, uh, poor man in shabby clothes that James had previously described in chapter 2, verse 2. In the last section, James was rebuking the Christians who showed judgment to such a man. The Christian was reproved for acting in such an ungodly way. But in chapter 2, verse 15, James is showing what is even worse than that and why such rebuke is needed. For this person, the one who does nothing for the poorly clothed and hungry individual, has displayed a completely meaningless faith. This individual has said with their mouth the right action, go in peace, be warmed and filled. But the heart of this individual was not really interested in accomplishing this task, for their faith was actually no faith at all. This empty faith that James describes here sounds very similar to another verse, several other verses, in fact. But one that came to my mind was Isaiah 29, 13, where the Lord says to unbelieving Israel, This people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me. Be careful to notice, church, that James is not saying that if you don't care for every homeless or hungry person that you ever come across, then you don't have true faith. There are many good reasons and many bad reasons to help a person who is homeless or hungry or in need of clothing. That's not James's point. We have to always remember to look at James's point of what he's trying to say with these extreme examples. I really appreciate James. I, I feel like I give these extreme examples. It's the way that I think when I'm talking to people. I, I jump to the most extreme side so you can fully see the point that I'm trying to make. Sometimes that can be very off-putting. Sometimes that comes off as very shocking to people. So I appreciate James for speaking my language. But we have to understand what James is trying to say with these examples. Because if that's all that we see, if that's all that we see, that this person just needed to take care of that person and they, they would have been... Uh, uh, proper in doing so. Their faith would have then been real. We're missing what he's saying. We're missing the point of what James is trying to make. Because James is saying that real, true, and genuine faith will ultimately always produce godly actions. There will be godly works that is a part of their faith. This is why next in verse 17, James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. The person with dead faith has only an intellectual experience. Their faith is about themselves, it's about their own ego, it is about their own good, hence why they would not care for other people. 
They believe in God because it fits their own personal image of how they wish to be viewed by the world. Unfortunately, I think that this type of faith makes up a large population of church-going individuals in our culture today, like they makes up a large population of those poll numbers that we looked at of the people who identify as Christian, but surely by their actions and lives cannot be. For in his mind, this person with dead faith may even know the doctrines of salvation. They may even know them well. But they have never truly submitted themselves to God or truly trusted Christ for their salvation. This person knows the right words, but they do not back up their words with works. But true faith in Christ brings life, John 3.16. And where there is life, there must be growth, there must be fruit. Three times in this paragraph, James warns us that faith without works is dead. He says it in 2.17, 2.20, 2.26. Obviously, James is making a point. We should beware, brothers and sisters, of a mere and only a mere intellectual faith. For such a faith is a dead faith. But true faith produces true works. And we know, church, that good works cannot produce salvation. We know that. But salvation must most certainly produce good works. As John Calvin says, as John Calvin says, quote, it is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. Leave it up to the great theologians of, of, of past to have these wonderful statements that are often sometimes very lengthy, but sometimes so concise that you could reflect just on those words. It is faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. James is likely dealing with a problem that was common then, and it is common today. Namely, individuals thinking in their minds that they have true faith without really having true faith. The emphasis is on a person saying that he or she has faith, but the absence of works from that person's life proves, proves that this faith is a matter of words only. It is a dead faith, and such a dead faith does exist. It is unfortunately alive and well in our world today as it was in James's time. But James anticipates those with this dead faith to try to refute this audacious claim that their faith, in fact, is a dead and worthless faith. James anticipates this. So in verse 18 we read, But someone might say, you have faith and I have works. But James responds, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. James knew that some would respond to his teaching by suggesting that it was uh, just a matter of preference or perspective. They might be thinking that one Christian might specialize in faith and another might specialize in works. Who are we to judge, right, James? You just told us that. But James condemns any such reasoning. He maintains that it is impossible to show faith without works. It is, however, very much possible to show faith through works. Like the left wing and the right wing of a bird both move together to produce flight, so too do faith and works come together to produce and display true and genuine faith. Because belief in itself, according to James, is not enough to mark a true Christian. And so James goes on to say in verse 19, You believe that God is one. You do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. Many times in James' epistle, references are made that would appear to allude to the pompous Pharisees of the time. 
As Jesus often rebuked these Pharisees for their empty and false faith, James here also addresses the same thing. Remember that James's readers were largely Jews who had been converted to Christianity. Their Jewish background meant that they were very familiar with the Shema, the Jewish confession of faith, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, likely what James is alluding to in his statement. For even the Pharisees that ultimately pushed for Christ to be put on the cross, crucifying Christ, believed in the Bible. They believed in God. They were the religious people of the time. And so James makes very clear in verse 18 that there is such a thing as false and unsaving faith. And one of the marks of this seemingly false faith is that it contents itself with just a mere belief in the existence of God. In fact, it boasts itself in that. Oftentimes, these individuals will become very robust in their theology because it is believed the more that they know in their mind, surely the more their faith must increase. James say that those who do believe in this truth, the Shema, James alluding back to the Shema. Those who do believe in this, they do well. But is belief in just the existence of God sufficient for the saving of one's soul? James answers, answers this by pointing to the demons of hell, saying they also believe in God. Even the demons know about the truth of God. And the truth that they know makes them tremble and shudder. Again, James's examples are so stark. But it speaks my language. I understand. It's such an sh- extreme example he says, you believe in God, good for you, so do the demons. What, what an extreme example, but that's what James is trying to point out. He's trying to make sure that we walk away knowing that just a belief in itself is not enough. It's the belief in the right things. It's transformation in Christ. This is James's ultimate and extreme example in displaying, again, this Poseidian effect in belief. Remember, that's what James does. He likes to show the extremes. His point being that belief in itself does not equate to true salvation, Even the demons believe. Rather, it is the works that are produced by true faith that will attest to the true salvation of an individual. And so following this stark and shocking example, James goes on in verse 20 to say, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? You can almost hear the intense tone of James's voice in this section. Obviously, James is quite passionate about making the point that he's trying to make. Here, James continues to firmly warn warn his readers about the danger of a dead faith, that is, a faith that claims to believe in the Lord Jesus, but gives no evidence of it. True faith has power, a power that results in a changed life. True and saving faith leads to action. It leads to obedience, and this obedience is not an isolated event. It continues throughout the whole life of an individual. It leads to continuous and perpetual good works. Unfortunately, multitudes, ever since the beginning of time, multitudes have walked an aisle, stood before a congregation, even professed to believe in the Lord Jesus. Some have even been baptized and placed on the membership roster of a church without ever possessing true and saving faith. Do you see, brothers and sisters, why church life and church doctrine is so very important in light of what James is telling us? Some have actually criticized churches such as ours. I'll be honest and say I know of people who have actually criticized our church. Being too intentional or being too involved in the lives of our congregants, you know. This is America. You can't ask people those questions, you know. Some have said that churches like ours go too far in church discipline. You can't be involved in people's lives that way. But look at what is at stake 
in light of what James is teaching us. For to have a false believer in the midst of a biblical congregation is not only dangerous, extremely dangerous to that congregation, it leads to that person believing that he or she is saved when in fact they are condemned. Do you see how it damages both? The congregation is now at danger, and now this person goes along and says, I'm part of this church, they accept me. Uh, each, each Lord's Day they allow me to partake in the Lord's Supper. You're actually confirming my faith. This is why it's so important that we follow through on, on the things of the doctrines of the church. I have to be honest with you that I personally tremble at the knowledge of churches that try to get people to walk the aisle and to say, to say the prayer, to say the sinner's prayer. People need to be brought to Christ, of course, of course. But there must be evidence to their salvation. There must be close discipleship. There must be uh, intentionality uh, between uh, the elders and the leaders of that church in that person's life. There has to be confirmation of that person's faith. No wonder so many people run away to these mega churches where they have no accountability. This is where you're going to find a large majority of them. Not that all mega churches are bad, not that all of them are teaching false doctrine, but if a person is a person who has dead faith and wants confirmation, that's where they're likely going to be. Unfortunately, many pastors will have to stand before God one day and give an account of the multitude of, quote, non believers that they allowed in their midst. But this is not so for the true believer. For the godly works of a true Christian are not the producer of their salvation. They are the testament to their salvation. They are the confirmation of their salvation. And so James turns to the Old Testament to give us two specific examples of what a genuine faith that produces works looks like. The first concerns the patriarch Abraham, and the second concerns a harlot named Rahab. James knows that we want to understand exactly what he's talking about. So he says, you want to see true faith? Let me show it to you. In verses 21 through 23, James says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Remember the story? You see that faith was active along with his works, James says, and faith was completed by his works. Verse 23, And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. James, like Paul, recognizes the scriptural truth that it was faith that was counted to Abraham for righteousness and his justification before God. This is a central point that James emphasizes as he wants his audience to fully understand this essential theological teaching. Most of us are familiar with the story of Abraham. In fact, we just read it. As God called him to offer up his son Isaac as an act of faith. But listen carefully. We've already read the Old Testament story of it. Listen carefully to what Paul has to say about this same story. Romans 4.13. Romans 4.13. Uh, 4, 1 through 13, I should say. Paul explains the reasoning behind Abraham's justification before God. It's going to get a little technical, a little theological-y. Little theologic it's not a word, but you know what I mean. So follow along. It's important to understand this, okay? This is Romans 4, 1 through 13. Paul, in reference to uh, what James is talking about. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Right? So he's saying if Abraham fits his works that justified Abraham, um, then this, uh, these works must be meaningless, because no man can be justified by works. 
This is ultimately what Paul is saying, okay? Verse 3, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed in God. Abraham had faith, okay? And it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Paul is making the point that works cannot attain righteousness. We have to follow this because it seems almost this is exactly opposite of what James is saying, but it'll come together, I promise. Verse 7, blessed are those who, whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. In other words, uh, works cannot save, only Christ can save. Verse 8, blessed is the man whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, meaning that this was not on account of Abraham's actions. It wasn't that Abraham did the action, circumcision, and then attained salvation. Okay, But before he was circumcised, verse 11, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith. In other words, Abraham had faith, therefore he got circumcised. The faith was, was the first part done by God. The action came about while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe, all of God's elect. That would include you and I, brothers and sisters, without being circumcised. So that righteousness would be counted to them as well. Verse 12, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In other words, Abraham was saved before the circumcision. He was saved because he was of the elect of God. He was chosen before the foundation of the world to be part of God's kingdom. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. And I would even go to say faith alone. So Paul says it is faith that justifies. James says it is the action that justifies. Who's right? Clearly they both are. And I think Paul even alludes that if you follow Paul's reasoning, he's saying the same thing that James says, that there was justification from God and the proof of that justification was the actions that Abraham did. Not only does Paul tell us that the circumcision was an action and a testament to that faith, uh, we read um, the Old Testament reading today showed that Abraham further uh, displayed that by the offering of his son Isaac. Continual works displaying that we truly do trust and believe in God. This is James's whole point, actually, that faith and works are one and the same. Where there is one there will also be another. They both exist simultaneously at the same time, working in conjunction with one another. James here is pointing to the connectedness of Abraham's faith that justified him and the action that was the testament to his faith. True faith produces true works. For true Christians, brothers and sisters, will have a faith that displays fruit. This is exactly what Christ himself says in Matthew 15, 20, that we will know them. We will know true believers by what? By their fruits. And we know Abraham's true faith by his actions, by his fruits. And through Abraham's faithful obedience, Scripture was fulfilled. 
This is why James goes on to say in verse 24, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Not in contrast to what Paul taught, but in further confirmation of it. It is the same doctrine being talked about in a more holistic way. James continuously emphasizes the joint role of faith and actions working together. Faith is the force behind the deed. The deed is the manifestation of the faith. Both James and Paul quoted the same passage, Genesis 15, 6, to prove their points. This is, uh, Paul specifically uh, addresses this in Romans 4, 3. Paul said that Abraham was justified by faith, and James said that Abraham was justified through his faith, evidenced by what he did with his life. And so Paul is discussing the initial act of faith that justifies the salvation. James is discussing the proof of that salvation through a sanctified life marked by works of faith in the midst of their trials and tribulations in this life. Do you see it? It all comes together. All of James's teaching with Paul and with the Old Testament, it all comes together in understanding this doctrine. This brings James uh, now to his second Old Testament illustration, which is a very interesting one. He chose two people. He could have chose any two. He chooses Abraham. And the second one, who does he choose? He chooses Rahab. Verse 25, And in the same way, just like Abraham, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? The background story for Rahab is found in Joshua 2, also in Joshua 6 mentions it. When Israel was about to invade the promised land and to take the city of Jericho, Joshua sent spies into the city to get an overview of the land. And there they meet Rahab, a harlot, a prostitute, who protected them and affirmed them that she also believed. She also believed in what God had said and what God was going to do. When the men departed, they promised to save her and her family when the city was taken, and they did. It's quite an exciting story. If you're not familiar with it, I encourage you to read it. It's a very encouraging story, especially in light of what James is teaching us about Rahab. And it's one of the Bible's great examples of saving faith. In fact, Rahab, the harlot, the prostitute, is also mentioned somewhere else, Hebrews 11. She's mentioned in the hall of faith, a prostitute, a person who was clearly living complete opposite of the ways of God, but develops faith, God-given faith. And her life, her actions then become a testament to that. Rahab was obviously a very clear sinner by the way that she lived her life, but she heard the word, the word and she knew that her city was condemned. Notice that she heard the word, right? The progression. She heard the words of God. She believed the words of God and she acted upon the words of God, all markers of true and genuine faith. Rahab puts her own life in danger as she acts upon what she truly believed. It might seem strange, the two examples that James chooses. One example is the great patriarch Abraham, who many view as the ultimate father of the faith. And the other example is the lowest of the low, a prostitute found within the walls of Jericho. But in James's narrative, if we understand James and we understand his teaching, it makes perfect sense. James is showing the two extremes. James really likes to do that, right? He's showing the two extremes. The best of the best, Father Abraham and a prostitute. These are the two examples of faith because everything in between marks the kingdom of God. <clears throat> Whether rich or poor, famous or unknown, regardless of the sins committed, all are the same in the eyes of God's kingdom. All are the same. 
For those of faith, true faith, are God's royal family. From Abraham to Rahab, all of those in the church today, all of us in this room with true and believing faith, we all make up the true people, the genuine people of God with our true faith. And so James concludes in verse 26, saying, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Faith which does not produce works is not faith at all. It's a corpse having an appearance of life, but ultimately being dead and unable to act or to save. Martin Luther, in his preface to Romans, describes the true nature of the Christian faith with these words. Listen to what Luther has to say about this. Oh, it is a living, busy, active, mighty thing, this faith. And so it is impossible for it not to do good works incessantly. It does not ask whether there are good works to do, but before this question arises, it has already done them and is always at the doing of them. He who does not these works is a faithless man. Luther understood very clearly that a true true Christian, a genuine Christian, will produce fruit in their life. And we've seen this is not something just confined to the book of James. This is taught consistently throughout the pages of the New Testament and, in fact, the Old Testament. Here, as we come to the end of the section today, James' James's conclusion is most clear. Faith and deeds are as essential to one another as the body is to the spirit. Apart from the spirit, the body is dead. Apart from the evidence of works, faith may be deemed dead. Because true faith, true faith, will continually produce, although never perfectly, okay, and we're going to talk about that, never perfectly, it will produce godly deeds and spiritual growth throughout the continuous life of the individual. And so as we move towards a closing, I would like to offer you four points of reflective application from James 2, 14 through 26. James has some very hard and difficult teachings of this uh, section of Scripture, right? And we must be careful to fully and properly understand and apply this doctrine to our lives because I'll be honest with you, as I was going through this, there's a lot at stake. And there's really two things as a pastor, as, as, as someone who is preaching, that, that you need to do. One, you want people who have true faith to feel very comforted, to feel very encouraged, to feel very secure in that faith. And you want people who have dead faith to absolutely not feel that way, right? But it's hard. It's difficult to, to do that. And the warning is there. The warning is there for us to take that it is possible to have dead faith. We all need to think about that. Well, we need to, need to reflect on that. We've come across these people. We will come across these people. They are out there, people who think that they believe, uh, but truly do not. And so here's uh, four points of summarizing reflective application that I think will help us with this. Point number one. Point number one. There is such a thing as dead faith. There is such a thing as dead faith. We have to start there. James's teaching should serve as a warning to us all. For someone to have dead faith is a very wretched thing. But for a church to confirm a person with dead faith and give false assurance of that person's dead faith is even worse. We all must make sure that we walk worthy of the calling which we have been called. And in doing so, we will abide by James's teaching. We will certainly produce good works. But hear this, church. This does not mean perfection, okay? This doesn't mean perfection. None of us can do this perfectly. The difference between dead faith 
and a person who's struggling with faith, even at a very deep, deep level, struggling with faith. The difference between the two, two of these is like night and day, okay? One of these is a genuine faith. The other one is not. In fact, it is the struggle in our faith that is a testament to the genuineness of your faith. In fact, I would even say that to struggle deeply in your faith, to struggle immensely in your faith, in fact, it is in itself a good work. You are working out your salvation with, trier, with, with fear and trembling. And so there should be confirmation there. When there is deep struggle in faith, that is itself a confirmation of true faith. But know this, church, that there are individuals in this world who may claim to have faith, but in reality do not. I've met these people. I, I know names. I've, I've seen this, and it's become abundantly clear this person is not a true believer. And many of these people I know are even attending churches. Um, I know of these churches, and I'm very concerned for that person's soul and for that church. Such individuals usually will go church to church, so you'll see a pattern often with these individuals until they find a place that will kind of leave them alone enough so as to allow them to live their life the way that they want, contrary to the scriptures, because again, they're not true believers after all, so that they can be affirmed in their own self-assurance of salvation. In other words, they're looking for a church who's going to give me a, a little, just enough of the, of the goodies every Sunday to make me feel good about myself, because that's really what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for that accountability. You know, don't, don't try telling me what I need to do in my life. That's, that's not what I'm about. I like to feel good and feel like I'm a good person. Um, and so if you can give me that and allow me to go on my way, that, that's what I'm looking for. And what, what, um, what mark do you think? Right? The, we're going to read this uh, book, Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Maybe you've went through it before. What mark do you think it is of a healthy church that these people often despise the most? It is one of the most essential teachings of the church that is unfortunately greatly lacking today, and that is church discipline. You will not find these people very often in churches that enact faithfully church discipline, lest they be held accountable to the true and biblical teachings of the church. And so we should pray for such individuals, brothers and sisters, that God may save their souls. We should have compassion, hoping earnestly that God would save them and pray for the churches that house such individuals that the Lord would call them as leaders in the church to be faithful in dealing with such false or dead believers. But as for you and us, you and I, brothers and sisters, may our lives continue to shine forth with good works. As Christ and Christ alone works good through us, may our faith be true. May it be genuine. May we never be found uh, anything that remotely looks like dead faith. Point number two. Point number two. Belief in God is not enough to save. It's a pretty stark one. Verses 18 through 19. Belief in God is not enough to save. As stated in the first point of application, it's possible to believe in God and even say with your lips that you believe in Christ, but have your heart be very far from God. As we read earlier, Christ tells us that we will know them by their fruit. But listen to this full section in Matthew seven fifteen through 20. I quoted Matthew seven fifteen. Listen to the fuller section in Matthew seven fifteen through 20 on this point, where here Christ says these words. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. These are people with the dead faith. Verse 16, you will recognize them by their fruits. 
Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs, figs from thistles? No, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits, by their deeds, by their works. To believe in God is a good and necessary thing. But it is our complete, under, our complete surrendering to the Lordship of Christ that brings about true salvation. For our very first good work that we produce, for any of us that are truly saved by Christ, was to respond to the call that our Lord and Savior put upon our hearts as he called us by his grace and grace alone out of that darkness and into the light so that our belief, our belief also led to actions. That was, that was our first fruit. It was the choice to receive as God gave it to us as salvation is from God and God alone. Point number three. Point number three. Abraham and Rahab serve as two examples of this true faith. Where do we go? We want to see this. We go to the Old Testament and we look at Rahab and we look at Abraham. These are the two individuals that were on the complete opposite sides of the spectrum. But it was one thing that united these two apparently completely unrelated individuals. It was true and genuine faith in the God of the Bible. What did each of these individuals display in their lives that James found fit to serve them as the two models for faith? Both acted upon their faith and trusted in the promises of God, even in the face of great difficulty. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his own son, for he knew that the Lord promised to make a great nation through him. Even when it made no sense, even when it seemed that all would be lost, Abraham still acted in faith toward God. He was obedient through his actions. And Rahab, while hiding the Israelite spies and knowing that she was risking her life in doing so, went to them and said this in Joshua 2, 9 through 11. These are her words. Listen to her. Listen to the words you can hear, the true and genuine faith of Rahab. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard now the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did in Sihon and Og, and two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. In other words, I've heard about you, I've heard about this God, and I believe. When we heard of it, Rahab says, our hearts melted in fear. You want to know a true believer, brothers and sisters? That's what the word of God does to them. Their hearts melt with fear and reverence of him because they know the God whom before they stand. And everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab and Abraham believed in God. And they trusted in God. They feared God. Thus their lives were displays of genuine faith and action. May we model, may we return to these examples and model our lives off of people who made it into that great chapter, the hall of faith that is found in Hebrews 11. Last point, point number four, as I quickly start merging to a conclusion. Point number four, works will never produce true faith, but true faith will always produce godly works. That's really the summary of it all. This is James's final verse. This is his final point. Works will never produce faith. Works cannot ever produce faith. But true faith will always produce godly works or fruit. When God transforms us, church, good fruit comes about. 
No amount of good works can bring anyone closer to God, but through Christ we become transformed slowly over time as God is patient with us, working with us in our own sins. And if you are lacking in producing this fruit, there's two realities. You are either detached from the vine and you need to reattach, or you were never attached to begin with. Only you know, and only the people around can confirm, and only time will tell which of those realities is so. We don't want to live in complete fear that we could be that. My fear, being here to you, brothers and sisters, is I don't want anybody who is struggling in their faith to tip to the other side. I must be of the dead faith. There's no hope for me, right? If you are struggling deeply and you feel that conviction on your heart, brother or sister, no, that is confirmation of your faith. Come and talk to me about that. Know that that is Christ calling you back to himself. A person with dead faith does not have such convictions. May we trust in the Lord. May we run to him like Abraham and Rahab. May we believe in God, fear God, knowing that he is the Almighty. He is the one ruling and reigning from heaven. And may this be what brings about fruit through us. As Christ instructed all of us in the Law and Prophets, as he summarized them up in these words, we are to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Here's a little bit of a different twist on it. In doing that, in loving the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, in fearing Him, and revering Him, and in loving Him, when we give Him all of who we are, then we will love our neighbors as ourselves. The works will pour out through us. So as we conclude, I ask you, church, are you producing fruit in your faith? Perhaps you have drifted away from the vine that feeds your fruit, because apart from Christ, we're all fruitless. I pray it is not so. I encourage you, stay close to Christ, that our fruit, that your fruit may produce, and that our light may shine forth through our actions. I pray that everyone hearing this sermon today would again find great confidence and comfort and security in the faith that they have. And I also pray that if anyone hears this message who possesses a dead faith, that fear and dread would consume you, and that Christ would grant you true and saving faith by his grace and mercy, that you may come and save your soul. In closing, I would like to briefly read from you Hebrews 11, 1 through 3, where at the beginning of the Hall of Faith section, faith is defined for us. As all the people are listed in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews 11, it's defined for us in the first few verses. And it says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their condemnation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We serve the true God that reigns over his spiritual kingdom now, brothers and sisters, and so may all of our lives display true and genuine faith as we humbly serve him, allowing the fruits to come forward, allowing the Savior to work through us to produce these good things as we sojourn in our trials and tribulations on this earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the words of James. I pray, Father, one of the things that I said near the end, I pray that you would give conviction, Father, to all of us. May you help those who are struggling in their faith. Give them assurance, Lord, but convict them of their sins, that they would come to you. Help us to know that it is our conviction that is a testament of that. If we are not producing fruit, Father, something is wrong. Help us to identify that. Help us to ask the questions, are we being faithful? Are we reading the scriptures? Are we attending to our soul? Are we fellowshipping with with believers, Father? For I have seen and know all too well that when we 
stop feeding those things, Lord, that the fruit will, will begin to cease. So encourage us, help us to be faithful in this matter, Lord. May you be faithful in all that you promised. In the name of Christ we pray. All God's people said, amen.